Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. I'm sure a lot of people think their states are special, but I'm very partial to my own. That's Grace Gibson Snyder. What I always say about Montana is you can always get to a hike no matter where you are within 10 minutes driving, usually way less. Grace is 19 years old, and as you can hear, she loves her state and all the natural beauty it offers. My hometown, Missoula, has a river that runs right through it. And I spend time in the summers boating it, floating it, wading in it. My family has hunted and fished. We have little haunts all over the state where my grandfather, for example, went backpacking in the same area for 40 years every single year. Underlying everyone's life in Montana is an appreciation for And maybe even more importantly, a dependence upon the natural environment. So many people subsist upon agriculture and ranching. And so there is this super deep generational cultural connection to the outdoors, to a depth and an intensity that I haven't yet found anywhere else. But Grace's home state is changing. Climate change is threatening her family's connection to the outdoors. And even though she's just 19, Grace has decided to do something about it. She's a plaintiff in Held v. Montana, a landmark climate change lawsuit. The suit relies on an unusual legal strategy, using language in the state's constitution to challenge Montana's energy policy. The suit is also unusual because it's led by young people. It is so unfair that my generation are the ones that have to live with these impacts of climate change, like the smoke, like the glaciers when it is not us who made the decisions, nor really benefited from for generations. Obviously, we benefit now from fossil fuels, but the generations before. So it becomes so unfair that we are now the ones who have to do the work to protect our own lives. The case goes to trial next week in the first judicial district court in Helena, Montana, And the outcome could set a legal precedent as to whether or not a constitutional right to a clean and healthy environment exists. This could provide a roadmap for similar challenges across the United States. I'm John Glenn Hill, and today on The Weeds, a deep dive into Held v. Montana. The plaintiffs, the strategy, and what the outcome could mean for us all. When I talked to Grace at the end of last month, she'd just gotten back from a weekend spent camping. 
She told me about growing up in Montana and when she first started noticing the effects of climate change. I think it was always kind of in my peripheral vision, if you will. I don't know that there was one moment where I was aware of its existence. I think there were uh, maybe several when I was aware of its severity for the first time. One is the wildfire smoke in Missoula. I remember my freshman year of high school, I was on the soccer team. We have summer practices. And so it was August and the wildfire smoke from the fires across Montana and across the West settles into the Missoula Valley. The smoke was so dense that certainly the kids on the team with asthma could not play at all. And then for the rest of us, it was uncomfortable. It feels like it's scratching your throat and your lungs. And so we would move our practices inside into the gym, but then the gyms would fill with smoke if we opened the doors to let the heat out. You know, I I was aware because of school, because of news, et cetera, of the ties between increasing wildfires and the, the, the severity of the wildfires and climate change. And so that was one, the first time I was like super aware of the impacts of climate change on my own life. Another was also in high school, I sort of rediscovered Glacier National Park, if you will, after not going for a few years. And I went with my friends and we went on a hike and the glacier was melting, of course. There was runoff. There was a huge stream. There was a little lake. Of course, that happens naturally. It was the middle of summer. Of course, there's going to be melt. But to see it in person was really impactful because it underlined the acceleration, the human acceleration of this natural process. And so I felt very hyper aware all of a sudden of the changes that were going on in this place that I've grown up. So the fact that these glaciers might be gone in 50 years within my lifetime and that, you know, the future generations won't have them to walk around really hit home. And then the last little anecdote where I really realized the intensity of climate change was during... Greta Thunberg's speech to the UN. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. And at this point, I'd already been involved with climate work for a couple years. But it was all pretty local. And her phrase, the how dare you. How dare you. Encapsulated the the emotional piece of climate change in a way that I'd never felt before. The rage and the fear and the loss that comes with that in addition to the just the injustice, and that word, injustice, is so central to what I feel about climate change. It becomes so unfair that we are now the ones who have to do the work to protect our own lives. So you're a plaintiff in the case held v. Montana. And in your words, what is that case about? The case is to ensure that the Montana state government's actions do not violate our right to a clean and healthful environment. So we have an explicit right in our constitution to a clean and healthful environment in Montana. And the state's actions of promoting fossil fuels, both explicitly in policy as well as implicitly with all the, all the ways that they have developed the, the industry and through permitting, et cetera, have led to consistent and and increasing carbon emissions from from the fossil fuel industry. And 
these are shown to have impacts on climate change. And so the climate impacts then of all of these things affect Montana citizens as well as the Montana landscape. Obviously, those are very intertwined. And so the impacts of these on youth are particularly strong, partly because we are more susceptible to to the health risks of climate change, as well as the fact that we will be suffering longer from all of these things. And so our case is bringing this to attention so that the state of Montana can bring its actions back in line with the Constitution and hopefully seize this opportunity to become leaders in a a renewable energy. So you've spent about the past three years of your life involved in this. And, you know, I think back to when I was your age and my friends too, and there were so many changes we wanted to make in the world. But it seems like you and these other plaintiffs are actually taking active steps in order to do that. Like, it's not something you're thinking of, oh, you know, when I'm older, when I graduate or after these things, I can go ahead and make these policy changes. And I wonder what that's been like for you. What's it been like, you know, spending all these years, all this time working on this? It's really up and down. I am super grateful to be a part of this community even more than just, you know, the immediate community involved in this case, but but the community of people around the world who see work like the work that we're doing as uh, an opportunity for a new future. However, <laughs> um, this experience has also been incredibly frustrating mm. and repeatedly so. Um, How? In what way? The state government, in responding to our case, has been consistently reluctant to hear what we're trying to say, to allow this case to move forward, to make any sort of meaningful change. And this has gone to the point of, you know, denying human impacts on climate change at all, or changing some statutes in the legislature to try to invalidate our case and prevent it from going to trial. So to know that the state government, whose whole existence is in order to protect its people, is intentionally undermining and counteracting what its people are asking of it is super frustrating. On a little bit of a larger scale, to be a youth involved in in climate work is also a very mixed bag. I mean, there's the same Mm. community, there's the same support, there's the same hope, there's so much change happening. And yet, I have other things I would rather be doing. I mean, there's so much I'd love to do. And I took, for example, a philosophy class for the first time this year. And I discovered that I really love philosophy. I would love to spend my life thinking about things. But I have this sense of obligation to work in protecting the world, protecting other people, and protecting myself and my own future. I I don't see how I could choose anything else when there's so much at, at stake. In addition to the kind of public contribution to this, which is that mm. there's two sides, right? There's one side, the very supportive side, and I are the people who support our case, the people who support youth movements, the people who just believe in climate change and want it to change are incredible. It's, a, it's an incredible community. And there is also a lot of 
pressure from them. There is the, you know, you hear it all the time. The youth will solve this. The youth are the solution. They will be the change makers. That is a lot of pressure when you are 14 or 16, as I was getting involved in this case, to hear that you are the ones that they are relying on for the future. It ties back into what I was saying about injustice. Uh, It's not our job. We're not, well, I'm an adult now, but I was not when this case was filed. And so there's that <laughs> hard place, and then there's a rock coming from the other way, which is which is the people who don't believe in climate change or don't believe in our work and are telling us that we are too young, that we don't understand, that our work is not worth fighting for. And so there's this just constant struggle between being completely degraded and completely relied upon constantly. <laughs> and so um, I think that's creates a really intense mix of emotions and experiences that a lot of people in this type of kind of youth climate work that we experience on a regular basis. What do you wish policymakers and politicians understood about climate change? I think they understand climate change, the vast majority of them. I think they understand the threat, and I think they're choosing to ignore it. And so I guess what I wish they understood is that that seems unsustainable, to put it mildly. And in other words, it seems selfish. It seems pointless. It seems like we're heading towards an unfortunate future when there is a clearly delineated alternative (laughs) that we could make a choice. I know there's so much, obviously, technical and logistical challenges to the clean energy transition. I understand that. I'm not asking for a change tomorrow, either in Montana or federally or whatever level it may be. I know fossil fuels are not going to disappear tomorrow. But I'm asking, we are asking, that the legislature or the government take this opportunity to become leaders in clean energy, to shift our focus, to make a choice that will become equally lucrative, equally economically viable, and that there's just a choice that has to be made here. And I wish lawmakers understood that <laughs> that this is, it's the only way I see a future where I want to be there. Mm. And the youth don't have a choice. We will be there one way or another. So I wish for a, a reaffirmation of the government's role in protecting its people and a reaffirmation of their immense power to make good decisions for the people. And I I wish they understood that this was what is shown to be that best decision. Grace Gibson Snyder, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you so much for having me. Up next how some key language added to the Montana Constitution back in 1972 laid the groundwork for this lawsuit. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. 
Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com. It's the Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. We just heard from Grace Gibson Snyder, one of 16 youth plaintiffs in Held v. Montana, a lawsuit challenging the state's energy policy. Central to the plaintiff's case is the right to a clean and healthful environment. So how exactly did such bold and progressive language make its way into the Montana state constitution? For that, we need to go back about 50 years. This is the 1970s, the jet age, an exciting age of rapid change. Montana citizens came to the state capitol well aware of the issues and determined to write a new constitution to better serve the state for the 1970s and the years ahead. My name is Amanda Eggert, and I am an environmental reporter for Montana Free Press. The clean and healthful environment language was actually a pretty big fight when uh, 100 constitutional delegates were rewriting Montana's constitution in 1972. They went around and around and around on this language and ultimately passed it after many attempts. But I think there were two things that really inspired the inclusion of that language. Montana's environment was not in great shape at that time. There was a lot of industry pollution. To our surprise, we learned that Missoula air contains hydrocarbons as well as particulate contaminants, which in many respects exceeded those found in Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, and many of the industrial centers. There was a lot of clear cuts in our forests and mining waste in our rivers. And the delegates, I think, saw that and wanted to do something to mitigate all of that pollution or ideally prevent it. The other thing that I think is important about it is that there was kind of a national mood in the late 60s and early 70s that really favored environmental protections. I propose that we increase the beauty of America and end the poisoning of our rivers and the air that we breathe. So it was really a special time for the state to be rewriting its constitution. Who were the delegates that rewrote it? There were everyday people. There was a beekeeper, there was a rancher, there were homemakers. I think there was maybe one or two teachers in the mix. I believe that there was a provision that said the delegates could not currently hold statewide elected office, so that kept the politicians out of the mix, which I think a lot of people have said really informed the product that they ultimately arrived at. And I also think something that the delegates did 
that's kind of interesting and unique is they seated themselves alphabetically rather than by party. So I think that contributed to a more generally collegial kind of feel when they were drafting the Constitution and a more kind of cooperative approach to doing something so momentous. The idea of a constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment feels, I mean, it just feels and sounds very unique. Is Montana an outlier as far as this is concerned? Like, how common are these types of protections, especially on the state level? At the constitutional level, it's definitely unique. Hawaii has really strong protections and They actually have constitutional language protecting the state's natural beauty and natural resources, including land, water, air, energy sources. New York voters decided to amend their constitution with environmental protections in mind, and that passed 70 percent to 30 percent, so pretty broad margins. Just a year before the state constitution was amended in 1972, The state passed the 1971 Montana Environmental Policy Act. What is that policy? We call it MEPA. The Montana Environmental Policy Act was loosely modeled on the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. And MEPA directs state agencies to take a comprehensive look at large projects before permitting them. So it directs agencies like the Montana Department of Environmental Quality to look at water impacts, air impacts, to look at cultural resources that could be impacted by a large project or historical resources. And it's pretty unique in just that the breadth of considerations that are included under MEPA. So how has MEPA changed through the years since that, you know, 1971 passage? It's changed considerably, especially in the last 20 years. There was an amendment in 2001 to establish that MEPA was procedural rather than substantive, and that was an attempt by industry-friendly lawmakers to ensure that so long as a state followed the public notice, disclosure, comment process, that individuals adverse to a project would not really have standing to bring a lawsuit so long as Mm. the disclosures were made, essentially. And then more recently, in 2011, MEPA was amended by a Democrat from Butte, kind of an an interesting town with a big mine just below it, who wanted the state to exclude, quote unquote, global impacts in its environmental analyses. Mm. And the idea there was that the state shouldn't have to consider things like greenhouse gas emissions because of the way our atmosphere works and the way state boundaries are set up don't necessarily align with something like atmospheric pollution, or at least that was the idea when it was passed in 2011. Okay, so that's the constitutional amendment, and that's also MEPA. And that gets us into held v. Montana. So this case was filed in March of 2020, Can you walk us through the timeline of events regarding this case? March of 2020, 16 youth plaintiffs filed the lawsuit in a district court in Montana. Shortly thereafter, the state moved to dismiss the complaint, arguing that uh, the plaintiffs didn't have standing to bring the lawsuit. 
And the judge in this case, her name is Kathy Seeley. She denied the motion to dismiss the case and essentially set the the lawsuit on a path for trial. But also something interesting that's happened recently is that our legislature convened in January for a 90-day session, and they passed a couple of bills that have pretty strong implications for the lawsuit. How so? Well, central to plaintiff's claims was the state's energy policy. And that was a legislatively established piece of law that's about 30 years old, establishing a broad energy vision for the state. And the legislature actually repealed the entirety of the policy this spring. So shortly after that was passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, the state moved to dismiss the lawsuit, arguing that since this piece of law is no longer on the books, the lawsuit has no grounds to proceed. And they asked the judge to dismiss the case based on the repeal of that policy. And she did decide to narrow the scope of the case based on the repeal of that policy. But there's another law at play here too, and that is House Bill 971. And that explicitly prohibits the state from considering greenhouse gas emissions or climate impacts in its environmental review process. So Judge Seeley actually referenced the passage of House Bill 971 in her order that she issued on May 23rd. And she said that the courts may be unable to direct the state to consider greenhouse gas impacts, but it can certainly strike down a statute preventing them from doing something like that. And she's allowed the case to proceed. Were people surprised that Judge Seeley took this case on in the first place? Yeah, I think it I think it is pretty surprising. It still surprises me to this day, I would say, actually. It's a really big case. It'll be the first time that a climate change case of this nature goes to trial. I mm-hmm. think there'll be a lot of people watching it. Judges, I think, are often reluctant to rule on constitutional claims, such as a quote-unquote clean and healthful environment, because there's some subjectivity to that. Oftentimes, they would prefer to rule on statute alone, you know, what legislators pass in the Capitol every two years in Montana, because that can be a little bit more fleshed out versus Mm -hmm. a broad, overarching environmental protection for current and future generations, right? So... I was surprised. And it's it's really going to be interesting to, to see how it all plays out. Do we know why the judge denied the state's motion to dismiss? Did she give a reasoning at all? I think she recognized that the plaintiffs have standing and that standing is a, a legal concept, essentially establishing that the plaintiffs have demonstrable harms and that there are remedial actions that can be taken to correct those harms. And she also recognized that the state energy's policies do have a direct bearing on on those harms. So she said, yeah, I'll, I'll hear more about it and we'll see how it all shakes out after the trial. I think a lot of the times when we talk about climate change, we talk about it on this more global scale. Uh, but this seems really individual and really small scale, like these young people saying, no, this is harming me in this particular way. I've spoken with one of the lead attorneys for the plaintiffs, and I know that they took great care to establish 
a whole record. Their initial complaint is over 100 pages, which is huge by legal standards. But in that, they're trying to establish very specific individual harms. So there are plaintiffs that talk about being evacuated due to forest fires. There are plaintiffs who Mm. talk about grieving the loss of glaciers in Glacier National Park. There are plaintiffs who talk about concerns related to wildlife. And in addition to establishing those very specific harms, the plaintiffs also went through great lengths to demonstrate that climate change is happening, that climate change is happening in Montana, and that the state has been extremely permissive in its permitting of fossil fuel extraction, which is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in Montana, the the energy sector, coal-fired power plants, gas plants, that kind of thing. What exactly is the state arguing against the plaintiffs? The state is making all kinds of claims. A lot of them are central to whether or not the plaintiffs have standing. That's kind of a legal test establishing that there's a harm that's occurring, that there's some sort of judicial remedy that could correct those harms, and that the actors involved in this situation, this state, are, you know, implicated in furthering those harms. So much of the state's claims thus far deal with whether or not climate change is occurring, whether the plaintiffs have experienced the harms that they allege in their filings, and whether there is any legal foundation to change state energy permitting practices. In previous statements, the Montana State Attorney General's office has referred to this case as a publicity stunt, exploiting well-intentioned kids. We reached out to the AG's office for comment on the lawsuit, and they sent us a statement saying, quote, Following the legislative session, there are no existing laws or policies for the district court to rule on. A show trial on laws that do not exist, as the district court seems intent on holding, would be a colossal waste of taxpayer resources. This same lawsuit has been thrown out of federal court and courts in a dozen other states. And it should be dismissed here in Montana as well. So that's the legal battle. Underlying it all is another tension in Montana between preserving the outdoor economy and the state's role as an energy exporter. And there's billions of dollars on the line. We'll dig into that next. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. 
That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So, Amanda, can you talk about the impact of climate change in Montana? How's the land itself changing and how is it impacting citizens in the state's economy? I think one of the clearest assessments we have of climate change impacts in Montana specifically came out in 2017. It's called the Montana Climate Assessment. Our governor at the time, a Democrat, Steve Bullock, asked the state to put together this assessment. And it found Mm. that between 1950 and 2015, the state had warmed on an average between two and three degrees. Then it goes into more specific impacts, what that looks like on the ground. So we don't have as much snowpack as we used to. And that's a big deal for our rivers. Montana is a headwater state located along the continental divide. Some of our rivers go all the way down to the Columbia. Others go all the way down to the Mississippi. But with the loss of snowpack, we have less snow and therefore water to sustain our rivers into the late summer and fall. That's a big deal for our outdoor economy. Uh, Fly fishing is a great big deal in this state. Mm. And it's a big deal for agriculture. Lots of farmers are dependent on rivers for irrigation of their crops. Loss of snowpack is also a big deal for our ski industry and our outdoor recreation economy generally, which is about $7.1 billion. And then there are other impacts like more extreme wildfires and a longer wildfire season, which has health impacts because there's more smoke that everyone is sucking in through much of the summer and fall now. Montana has one of the largest outdoor recreation economies in the country. And and I think that's part of what makes Montana an interesting stage for this lawsuit, because while that's a fact, it also has the largest coal reserves in the country. Can you talk about those opposite forces of industry. It seems like these two very, very important industries to the state are diametrically opposed. Yeah, and that tension is very top of mind for me, having just come out of the legislative session where lawmakers passed some significant reforms to coal permitting and litigation challenging coal permits. We have a Republican in the governor's seat. We have a supermajority in the legislature of Republicans. And they are a little more old school in terms of their support for what I would maybe call, quote unquote, traditional industry, such as logging and mining and agriculture. And that definitely, I think, is reflected in the laws that are passed at the Capitol. So... I want to talk about the potential impact on Montana if this judge rules in the plaintiff's favor. I mean, it sounds like if the judge rules on the side of the defendants, things will stay the same, status quo. Um, But what will be different if the plaintiffs win? What, What does this change? What could this potentially change for Montana? And I understand... You know, that's kind of, it's a, it's a lot of guessing because so many different things could happen. But yeah, what are, what are some of those options? That's a really good question. And the way it's been explained to me by one of the attorneys working for the plaintiffs is that it's kind of like something like marriage equality, where initially they're just asking the courts to recognize that 
the current law is out of accordance with the Constitution. And so it would very broadly establish that these harms are occurring, that they are not supposed to be occurring according to Montana's constitution and to establish this overarching principle that we're going to kind of change the way that we do things. And so generally speaking, that would look like asking the state to bring its energy permitting practices in alignment with the constitution and uh, the protections for a clean and healthful environment. And then what that would look like in practice would kind of have to be, you know, um, established through many iterations of policy, I would think. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that potential jobs and economic impact if, you know, these changes are made? Well, I think one of the practices that's central to plaintiff's claims involves coal mining and coal combustion, right? And coal mining jobs are high-paying jobs relative to the median income in Montana. I think they're about 30% higher than... Montana's uh, median income. In addition to, you know, coal mining and power plants, there's there are communities that are entirely dependent upon coal. They've been described as, you know, a one-horse town kind of a situation mm. where if you don't have the power plant and you don't have the mine, then all of a sudden you have tumbling property values. You don't have a tax base to support your school at the same level. You know, maybe some of your local retailers go under that kind of a thing. I'm also wondering what this means regionally or even nationally. You know, uh, Montana exports a lot of this country's coal. It does. Yeah, it has the largest recoverable coal reserves in the United States. And it's a really big deal for, for the region. And I think I would, I, I suppose that the mining companies would argue that it's a really big deal for the nation as well. You know, if one of their revenue sources, like the Rosebud coal mine, were to shut down, that would be a big deal for a company like Westmoreland. Is it realistic to think that if the plaintiffs win in this case, okay, Montana will make the switch to green energy? Like, this is where the money will come from now. A lot of people are really curious about that. And I think there are a couple things at play. One is that even clean energy boosters will recognize that there are not as many, say, wind energy jobs as there are for mining coal and burning it. And the other thing that they also recognize is that they don't tend to pay as well as the coal jobs. So that's one component of it. You would potentially be looking at fewer jobs Maybe, though that's probably debatable, uh, that would pay a little less. The other piece of this conversation that I think is relevant is there's this kind of cultural divide in Montana regarding fossil fuel jobs and clean energy jobs. So I think it might be a little bit difficult for, for instance, someone working at a coal-fired power plant or a boilermaker to sign on to maintain wind turbines, for example. As this trial starts, what will you be watching for? What are the things that you have your eye on as you're looking to report on this? So the state is making the argument that climate change is not a result of human activity, that it's Mm. representative of natural variability. So I will be very interested to see how it makes those claims. They have an expert who will be testifying to that effect. 
And I'll also be interested in getting this both broad and deep look at the permitting process for energy projects in Montana. I'm kind of an energy nerd these days, and so I'll be really interested to see how the plaintiffs lay out the specific policies that have favored the fossil fuel industry. Do we have a sense of the timeline? Like, do we know, you know, about how long this trial will take and when we can expect a ruling from a judge? Like, what's that looking like? The trial is scheduled to take place over a two-week period, so it'll wrap up by the end of June. And, oh man, I don't have a crystal ball for when a ruling will come. I have talked to people who think that a ruling will come quickly. Evidently, one of the lead attorneys for the plaintiffs is confident that Judge Seeley will rule in the plaintiff's favor. Mm. I think there's no question that there will be an appeal to the Montana Supreme Court, no matter which way it goes. So I think we're looking at several years before it's finally decided. Amanda Eggert, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. That's all for us today. Keep an eye and an ear out for news about this case. I know I'll be following along when the trial starts on June 12th. Thank you to Grace Gibson-Snyder and Amanda Eggert for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Anouk Duso fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Glenhill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Each bloom brings a longing hope to some lonely heart. Bitter root to me is dear, growing in my land. Sing then that glorious air, the one I understand. Montana, Montana, glory of the West. Of all the states from coast to coast, you're easily the best. Montana. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.